0: Verses 15 to 29 can be found on page 979 and 980 of your pew Bible. Let's read together. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, now we ask that you would bless these few moments, and that, Lord, as we have just heard from your Son, we would not be those who hear but do not do. We would ask to be those who are faithful both in hearing and by your grace in the doing. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we come to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we need to remember that it is a sermon. When I was in seminary, our preaching professor used to urge young preachers to develop their ability to land the plane. A sermon should have a beginning, a middle, and an ending, and the preacher needs to know and possess the ability to stop When he's done preaching, stop circling the runway and just land the plane. And so in preaching class, you had X number of minutes. And when it was down to one minute, Dr. Smith would stand up and he would say, landing gear down. 30 seconds, he would say flaps down. If you went over time, he would look up and he would shake his head and go. You done crashed. Land the plane. Well, Jesus has no problem landing the plane. Having called his followers to the narrow way of the gospel, he now gives us words of warning. The narrow way leads to life. But remember, he told us that the narrow way is also the hard way. False teachers and false hearers clog narrow way. And so Jesus' words are clarion call for us. You see in our text this morning, Jesus is doing something particular and it's our big idea that you see in the bulletin this morning on page five. Jesus authoritatively divides his followers from what is false. Jesus authoritatively divides his followers from what is false. So three points we want to make this morning. First, we need to beware the false teachers. We need to beware the false teachers. Having called us to the narrow way, Jesus reminds us that some of what makes it hard are things that we're actually going to encounter within the church. That some of the things that make living the Christian life difficult are things not that we're going to encounter in the workplace, not necessarily things that we're going to encounter in the world. But one of the things that makes the living the Christian life, makes walking on the narrow way of Jesus particularly difficult, are things that we're going to find and encounter within the church. And so he begins in verse 15 by warning us, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, as Jenny read for us this morning, This is not a new problem for God's people. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, one of the laments that the prophets have is that those who are supposed to be caring for and shepherding for and faithfully stewarding God's word and the sacraments that God has given his people, they're not doing it. Instead, they're leading the people into the kind of idolatry that God prohibits. Instead of leading the people to life and repentance, they're leading the people into error and into God's judgment. Well, how will we know if someone is a false prophet? How will we know someone who's really a sheep versus someone who is a wolf in sheep's clothing? Now, we know that one of the ways that the Bible grabs our attention, one of the things the author uses is repetition, And so I hope you note in verses 15 through 20 how many times Jesus uses the word fruit. We know those who are true shepherds from those who are false shepherds by the kind of fruit that we see in their ministry. And it's interesting that right off the bat, both from the context and what he's going to tell us later, Jesus wants us to understand that biblical fruit doesn't necessarily mean a crowd that your ministry is not fruitful because you can quantify or count the nickels and the noses that are accompanying that particular ministry. In fact, he told us when he called us to enter into the narrow, wet gate, he told us in verse 14 that the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Friends, this is not about nickels and noses. It's not about how big. It's not about what we can quantify. It's not about what we can count. There's a really fascinating podcast out right now. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I've I've mentioned it before. And one of the things that's really terrifying about uh, the podcast is The guy who's done it has gone back and interviewed a bunch of people who were a part of that church. And they will all say to a person, hey, we knew at a certain point stuff wasn't right. Like we knew there were abuses of power going on. We knew this thing was coming off the tracks. But we looked at how many people were showing up every Sunday. And we looked at how many campuses there were. And we looked at how many copies this book sold. We were looking at all of that. We were going, but there's so much fruit. Well, no, there was lots of stuff, but that stuff doesn't necessarily equal fruit. Biblical fruit doesn't mean a crowd. And Jesus is going to remind us that simply because people are hearing doesn't mean that they're hearing the right thing. See, biblical fruit does not necessarily mean a crowd. We also then hopefully need to hear the rest of the New Testament on this. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 uh, starts earlier than verse 25 to 31. But in verses 25 to 31, he's called the Ephesian elders together. He knows that it's the last time he's going to be speaking to them. And out of love and care and concern for a church that he helped plant, he's addressing the elders in that city. And he tells them, listen, I want you to know that I know that when I leave, ravenous wolves are going to come in and they're going to threaten to tear the church apart. This warning against false teachers is something that is consistent throughout the entire New Testament. Peter does it a little differently in 1 Peter chapter 5. And instead of warning us against false teachers, instead of warning us against those who are false shepherds, He tells us what a real shepherd is supposed to look like. So keep your finger, if you would, in Matthew chapter 7, but turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we want to look together at verses 1 to 4. 1 Peter chapter 5 can be found on page 1,222 in your pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Peter, writing to the church, says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter understands what a good shepherd is supposed to look like. Good shepherds know first and foremost that it's not their flock. Did you note that? How often he references the idea and the fact that the flock is not the pastor's flock. It's God's flock. Grace Church is not my church. It's not Matt's church. It's not KT's church. The Lord has called us to shepherd his people in his church. It's not mine. It's not theirs. As we went through in Sunday school several months ago, Jesus is the Lord and head of his church. And so we are simply serving at his good pleasure under him. So that means then that as we think about how we're going to beware the false teachers and how we're going to think about fruit and how we're going to think about what it is that a shepherd is supposed to do, there is a pressing question then that we need to ask. And the pressing question is this. Week by week, as you think about the ministry among God's people that's done by those who would call themselves shepherds, you should be asking this question who's being made much of who's being held up as an example who's being worshiped who's the star of the show now believe it or not uh, you'll know if you've seen if you've seen Kyle's show you know that he's rather good at being the star very good at it Uh, Matt and I both have that particular besetting sin. We like being, like when we walk into the room, we want you to notice us. We just do. Our wives find it both awesome and infuriating that that's how we are wired. But friends, I hope and I pray that week after week after week, you understand we are not the ones to be worshiped. We're not the ones to be made much of. We're not the star. We can love you. We can look after you. We can seek to faithfully minister what God has given us, which is word, prayer, sacrament, and living among you. But Kyle Thomas did not die for your sin. Matt Geiger did not suffer in order to redeem you. I'm not the one who took your place on a cross. Jesus did. He's the one whom I hope and pray we make much of. He's the one that we gather to worship, and he is the one who is the star, I hope and pray. Week after week after week. There was a group of American pastors who decided in the 1880s that they were going to go to London and visit uh, churches there. And so on one Sunday morning, they went to a rather large church. Uh, The pastor, the congregation at that point was three to four thousand people. And as they went to lunch after the morning service, they got together and said, as they as they were sitting around eating, that guy was a great preacher. Like what a great preacher preacher well that evening they went to the metropolitan tabernacle where charles spurgeon was the pastor and as they went and had late tea which is what they do in england after the evening service as they were sitting around having their tea they looked at one another and said what a great savior friends that's the difference that we're after here we don't want you leaving going, aren't our elders great? We want you leaving going, isn't our Savior amazing? Isn't Jesus a great Savior? But it isn't just those who lead. It isn't just those who shepherd that we need to be aware of. No, we also need to be aware of what's going on and what's possible in our own hearts. For Jesus, when he uh, calls us away from what is false, when he seeks to divide us from what is false, knows that oftentimes the greatest enemy to our relationship with him is the person who looks at us in the mirror. And so he wants us to beware the false hearers. He gives us two parables then. The first is about two doers. (coughs) The second is about two houses. So first, the two doers. Now, this is a hard text, and it's a text that's been used as a proof text as people talk about and debate their view of spiritual gifts or their view of uh, what are known as the miraculous or charismatic gifts. Those who hold that such gifts are still in effect today will point to this and say, see, Jesus expects that this will be a normal part of your ministry. Cessationists point to this text and say, See, Jesus doesn't expect that this will be a normal part of your ministry. And Then it gets even more complicated by the fact that if we read the rest of the book of Matthew, we will see Jesus doing the very things that he's talking about. Jesus will indeed prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works. In fact, it's one of the ways by which we know that Jesus is really the Messiah. Then we go on and we read in the book of Acts, and what do we see Peter and Paul and James and John and Andrew and the rest of the crew, what do we see them doing? We see them preaching powerful sermons in Jesus' name. We see them casting out demons in Jesus' name. We see them doing mighty works in Jesus' name. And then if all that wasn't enough, all of it, as we've noted, is being done in Jesus' name. The folks who Jesus says, listen, your profession of me is a false profession, are walking around doing All that they do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how are we supposed to make sense of this? When two opposing sides of a debate within the church are both citing this text and saying, See, it proves our point, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, as we said earlier, let's remember that this is a sermon. And as such, it is a unified whole. And when we come to Jesus' words in verse 21, we're coming at the very end of the sermon. And so we need to stop and ask ourselves, okay, uh, what's come before? Is there anything that would precede these words in this sermon that would help us make sense? Well, let's remember that in Matthew chapter 5, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the Beatitudes And do you remember what he calls his people to in the Beatitudes? He calls us to being poor in spirit. He calls us to being those who mourn, particularly those who mourn our sin. He calls us to meekness. He calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. And he lets us know that we're blessed if indeed we're being persecuted for his namesake. In other words, we're being persecuted for the gospel. But you know what Jesus doesn't mention? He doesn't mention prophesying in his name. He doesn't mention casting out demons. He doesn't mention doing mighty works in his name. No, when Jesus gives us this wonderful manifesto on human flourishing, he wants us to understand that doing his will looks like being poor in spirit and mourning our sin and being meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being peacemakers, and understanding that we're going to be persecuted for his name's sake. He doesn't mention any of these things. Luther. Luther. And commenting on this text has this to say, it's a frightening judgment that the Lord, Lord sayers are always busier and more energetic than genuine Christians. See, Jesus is warning us that simply because outwardly something looks really good and it looks really energetic and it's claiming the name of Jesus, you're going, man, they're they're getting things done. And by the way, as Americans, we love it when people get stuff done. Jesus says, but listen, that's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to be poor in spirit. I'm calling you to mourn. I'm calling you to be meek. I'm calling you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm calling you to be merciful and pure in heart. I'm calling you to be peacemakers. And I want to let you know that you're going to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Friends, simply being busy And slapping Jesus' name on it is not an authentic sign of gospel fruit. And Jesus warns us about the two kinds of doers. He also tells us about two different kinds of houses. Now it's important to note, I think, that as we think about not just this particular parable, but the one that came before it is Jesus is talking about people within the church. He's talking about people who would profess... To be Christians. He's not talking about uh, pagans out in the street. He's not talking about those people. No, he's talking about us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those who would profess and seek to do things in his name. And Jesus says, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that we would hear the word, but we wouldn't do it. We would hear the word, but we wouldn't do it. Now, again, those of you who are parents, particularly if your, parent, if your children are below a particular age, uh, you know that if you if you call them to do something and it doesn't get done, what's the question that you ask them? Didn't you hear me? Because we presume that hearing and doing... Go together. So we have two options, or actually we have three options. Either your kid is just willfully disobedient, which no parent really wants to contemplate, even though we know it's true. They actually didn't hear us, which is sort of the the kindest of the three options. Or your kid's just really not very smart. It's one of those three things. And so at that point, you've clearly talked about this in your house? Okay. I'm going to leave that alone, Sid, Just know your pastor loves you, all right? Which is it, right? It's hearing and doing, and they have to go together. And in the parable, there are some interesting things that we want to note as Jesus unpacks this difference between hearing and doing. Note when he talks about the two houses and the house that's built on the rock, he doesn't promise you that the house that's going to be built on the rock is going to grow into a great mansion. He doesn't say that it's going to expand. He's not promising you your dream home. No, Jesus' promise is that the house is going to stand. Not that it's going to be the greatest thing you've ever seen. Not that you, like the Clampets, are going to have a cement pond out back and it's going to be this beautiful place in Beverly Hills. No. He simply promises you that your house is going to stand. And notice and he also doesn't say that your house is going to be spared storms. Both houses face storms. Both houses are asked to withstand the rain, the floods, and the winds that are going to beat on the house. What Jesus is interested here is not sensation, but survival. Jesus isn't worried about how grand and how great and how lovely and how wonderful and whether or not it captures your personality. He's not interested in any of that in this parable. He wants us to know that when the storms of life come, there's only one foundation upon which we can build our house. And so let me ask you this morning, what's your foundation? It's well and good. To talk about how spiritual you are. It's well and good to say that you believe the Bible. It's well and good to talk about the different preachers that you listen to. Or the ministries that you think are good. If you can quote some Luther, great. But Jesus is here reminding us. That the way our foundation is going to be betrayed is not what we hear or what we know. The way our foundation is betrayed is what do we do? How are we living our life? Friend, that's how we know what our foundation is. And so Jesus calls us away. He's trying to divide us from that which is false. Thirdly then, and this is a really interesting little footnote at the end, uh, we, that Matthew gives us that when Jesus speaks, the crowds, we note, are astonished. Literally, it means literally they're, they're just sort of standing there dumbfounded. They can't speak, they're in awe. And the reason they are in awe at his teaching is because he's teaching as one who has authority, not as their scribes. Well, that doesn't mean that the scribes uh were not eloquent. It doesn't mean that the scribes didn't understand rhetoric. It doesn't mean that the scribes didn't know the scriptures. They did. But what the scribes like to do is they would give you kind of a running commentary. They would say, well, yes, uh, Moses says this, but then Rabbi this says this, and Rabbi this says this, and Rabbi this says this. And so in the end, instead of actually talking about the text, they were talking about everyone that had talked about the text. They didn't actually get to the Bible itself. They got to All of the tradition and all that had been written about the text previous to that. But Jesus, because he is God, speaks with divine authority. Jesus, because he is God, can cut through all of that conversation. And impress the word of God upon the hearts of the people of God. They're in awe. And Jesus has authority because he himself is God. Remember when he was born. The prophet Isaiah said that he would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us. And so here is the incarnate God among his people. And he is speaking. And his are the very words of God. And they are authoritative and they are powerful. And when his people hear them, they are astonished. God speaks to us this morning. Not merely through His Word, but He speaks to us also this morning through the sacrament. See, the table this morning reminds us of our foundation. It reminds us of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that Jesus died, not for his own sin, but for ours. That he took our place. Not because God the Father was up in heaven sort of twisting his arm. No, the Bible tells us that he willingly went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Friends, the foundation for the Christian life is not anything having to do with what you have done. Rather, the foundation for the Christian life Is based entirely on what God has done for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just remind us. No, the table this morning also strengthens us. I don't know what particular storm you're going through this morning. My guess would be that you're either in the middle of one, you're headed into one, or you have just come out of one. That's kind of how life works. And so if you're here this morning, and wherever you are in your storm, I want you to know that God gives us the gift of the table in order to strengthen us. He gives us the gift of the table, and it's this this tangible reminder of his love and his care and his concern. He is telling us each and every Sunday through the table that he is our God and we are his people. He's strengthening us. He wants us to know He has not left us. He has not abandoned us. And if our house has been built on the foundation of the crucified Lord Jesus, no matter what the storm, it will stand. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for the work of your son the lord jesus thank you not just for the words that he spoke that we have been giving our attention to but thank you uh, for his perfect obedience even to the point of obedience on a cross and lord uh, we we bless you this morning for we know that your spirit is now going to take this meal and we're going to be strengthened that you're going to use it for that particular purpose and so lord uh For those who are just heading into a storm, uh, Father, we pray that they would understand that storms are a normal part of the Christian life. We hate them. But they're not weird. Uh, They're not somehow living in disobedience. They might be. But simply because there's a storm doesn't mean that they're being disobedient. Father, for those who are in the midst of a storm, I pray that you would give them the peace that passes all understanding. Father, I pray that they would understand that their God is mighty and he has not forgotten them. And Father, for those who are coming out of the storm, I pray that they would rejoice. That they would rejoice because of uh, your word tells us that suffering does its work, that our character may be perfected, that we would look more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And so Father, would... Uh, the table this morning strengthen us with the table this morning remind us that you have not left us that you have not forsaken us but that you are our god and we are your people for we pray all this now in jesus name amen